0: Hey, critical thinkers, welcome to this new episode of Healthy and Awake Podcast, where today we are talking about the very controversial drug that everybody seems to be either talking about, thinking about, taking it, Ozempic. It's the new weight loss craze that you're seeing ads for on TV, in Facebook. It seems to be everywhere. And so you know I love speaking with brilliant medical doctors on this show, and that's why I'm speaking with Dr. Amy Loden today. Uh, We explore Ozempic. I ask a lot of questions. I come from a place of curiosity and skepticism, as I always do. And Dr. Amy Loden is very meticulous in her answers and the details. And of course, as a medical doctor, she's well-versed in medical topics like this one. So it was a really exciting conversation. I really wanted to know more about some of the questionable aspects of Ozempic some of the possible side effects long term side effects things like that as well as a lot more but a bit more about Dr. Amy Loden I'm looking at her bio here and she is board certified in both internal medicine and lifestyle medicine she is a fellow of the American College of Physicians she is also a certified health and wellness coach she's board certified health coach like myself she graduated with honors from both Missouri State University and the University of Missouri School of Medicine. Amy is the founder of Vitality Medical and Wellness Consulting, and her and I have worked together in a professional capacity, so I can speak firsthand to her brilliance, as well as the fact that she's a genuine good person, and she really cares about what she does, and, you know, it does say a lot for somebody not only to be a medical doctor and go into health coaching, right? Because the implementation aspect of health is kind of missing from the current medical model. And Amy recognized that and became a health coach on top of being a doctor. But not only that, this is a show where we talk about controversial health topics. We say harsh truths, maybe truths that people might be afraid to talk about or unwilling to talk about, and she was brave enough to come on this show. I really think you're going to like this one a lot. There's a lot of value packed into this episode, especially if you or somebody you know has been thinking about taking Ozempic. Maybe they're already taking it, and so I do my best to be as reasonable with my skepticism as I can, but of course, Dr. Loden really helped with that balance, because she's a true professional. So, without further ado, here we go Ozempic culture. So, with Ozempic, I'm hearing everybody take this. Uh, a lot of the people that I work with are asking about it. And This idea of weight loss drugs isn't exactly new. So I actually looked this up. There's a history of them. Even as far back as the 1950s and 60s, you look at amphetamines, which are still around. I guess they just remarketed those. You had ephedrine. You had one here called Fenfen. This was in 1997. They removed it because of its link to heart valve damage. And then today, of course, we have Ozempic uh, semiglutide which is all the rage right now you see all kinds of ads for it and everything so is this it have we found the magic bullet for a weight loss drug
1: we haven't found the magic bullet but the picture is a little bit bigger um, than what probably is being told Uh, you've got a great point that this weight loss drugs are not new they have been around for a long time and some of them have been quite dangerous frankly. The um, stimulant category of the medications, the amphetamine, many of the same things today that insurance companies require us to use even before injectable medications, these are medications that aren't friendly to the cardiovascular system. So the big difference in the injectable medications versus what we've had for decades is that the semaglutide and these other medications are very friendly to the cardiovascular system and in fact have been shown to Decrease major cardiovascular events, including heart attack and stroke. So there is benefit from these compared to the other. But I think your deeper question comes to, you know, what is the treatment for obesity? Is medication the right thing to do or not? There's also an added layer with semaglutide specifically because there's a lot of compounding pharmacies who are using semaglutide salts, which are not FDA approved. They're not the same thing at all. But the average person has no way to know that. And so that pulse marketing is also causing a lot of problems. And unfortunately, it is giving a a new pathway into conflict here. There's a a lot of people who say, well, can't you just eat less, move more? That solves the problem. And in a sense, I get what they're saying. Um, Obesity is a disease, though. It's not an identity and it's not a willpower problem. There is nothing going wrong when obesity occurs, which is really not what most people think. They think this is a terrible process that they're putting on weight, that their body's not working correctly. When in fact, their body's working exactly how it's supposed to. Our body is designed to use whatever calories and ingredients that it consumes to use it for energy. But anything extra is supposed to be stored as energy. And that's what obesity is. But it does tip into a a Actual clinical disease once it gets to be at a certain point. And everyone's body is different. I acknowledge that BMI is not perfect. It's all I have to use as a clinician right now. Um, and those are the types of things that we have to make decisions on when it comes to injectable medication. They're actually approved only based on BMI. So recognizing the imperfect imperfections of the system, um, those are the constraints we have. And it comes back to your original question: is this the next greatest and best magic bullet and it's not especially if you look at the actual studies when these were done these studies were predicated on the drug success based on lifestyle first and that's what i don't hear anybody saying and that's probably my biggest message i wish people understood these were built a calorie deficit meaning the minimum amount of activity recommended by the cdc and oftentimes more they had nutrition and access to registered dietitians, coaches. They had one-on-one personal trait personalized training many times. And none of that is in our system and it's not in place for people to use. And so their default is, well, I thought I was moving more. I thought I was eating less. It sailed. Therefore, I need a medication. And that's not the right answer. And so um, you know, what I think about these injectable medications, they have tremendous capacity to improve quality of life. They have An ability to decrease potential costs by preventing and averting cardiovascular disease and stroke. But what if we never even had to be there? What if we never had to use the medication because our lifestyle actually set us up to not need the medication? And that's really what I'm passionate about in these medication discussions. I use them and certainly they're appropriate for certain people. We do not use them aesthetically in my practice. There are certainly people who are doing that, um, but I do try to follow the clinical patterns as quickly as they can based on the evidence that we have and recognizing it's not perfect. It will change as well.
0: Yeah. And I definitely I should be clear because I come from a place of compassion and and understanding. Of course, I I really feel for the people who are maybe really struggling and find the need to pursue one of these drugs. I guess my problem is uh, I've never been a fan of the pharmaceutical industry as like a, a business per se. And, you know, there's a lot of great things that come from pharmaceuticals for some people. But, you know, one of the things that really launched me into an awareness about some of the questionable things perpetrated by the pharmaceutical industry is I read a book on SSRIs, which is obviously very different from these GLP-1 receptor drugs. Uh, But the, the argument, the model for prescribing those SSRIs was basically you isolate one variable. You look at serotonin, Totally irrespective of quality of life or any of these other factors or you know any of the behaviors that they might be engaging in to lessen their depression. It, it's just totally irrespective of that. And it seems like the same argument. Uh, it seems like, well, we know that these GLP1 receptor drugs can suppress appetite by affecting the gut in a certain way, and that in turn will lead to uh, weight loss. So that seems like a good argument, but then you look at the bigger picture and you find Well, exercise also has a positive impact on these GLP-1 receptors, which we know also decreases appetite. So, I I mean, I just struggle with the argument. And at the same time, it does sound like you're saying the actual studies do take this sort of thing into account. It's just maybe not being applied that way in the actual culture. Is that right?
1: Correct. That's 100% correct. The other thing that's not really, um, we don't totally understand it, first of all, but what we do understand is not being communicated. And that's when someone has developed clinical obesity. And it's now a diagnosis. It's not just a pattern where I had some pounds, shift back and forth. But we're talking about people whose BMI is 30, 35, 40 and, and higher. Once you've tipped into that disease state, the problem becomes your fat cells are programmed in, in our genetics that are, are, they want to maintain their existence. And so it actually changes the hormone levels of leptin, and it affects the leptin and ghrelin work. Leptin is the hormone that's supposed to make us feel full. That's one of the things that they're capitalizing on when they're um, talking about how this makes you not hungry. Oh. There's also um, you know, ghrelin is, is the hormone that makes us feel hungry. And so there's also a, a spectrum here that we're evolving in our understanding of and trying to figure out how does this play in and, and how much are these drugs affecting that process versus the brain. And there's a whole different spectrum of brain-related eating disorders that come into this as well. And I imagine most of your listeners are familiar, for example, with anorexia or perhaps bulimia and binge purge disorder. But there's a, a different one that I actually find to be incredibly common. And I don't have the... Um, the understanding of why we're seeing this much more, unless it's just that we're looking for it right now. But it's one of the main reasons I find people, especially women, are not able to lose weight. It's a disease called binge eating disorder. It's totally different than bulimia. And in binge eating disorders, similar to the question you raised earlier about serotonin, the problem here is dopamine in the brain. And there's only certain ways to get that dopamine leveled off so that you stop thinking about. it food and in fact that's what I frequently hear people say is the noise in my head about the food stopped. And one woman even told me she's like is this what normal people feel and so you've got that whole thing complicating this as well um, and, and trying to understand what's actual physiology what's pathologic what is something that is a marketing scheme and it's a, a fad that we made find like Finvin is dangerous. You know, those are all things that we don't completely understand. We think we do, and we certainly articulate to the best we understand. But there's a lot of gaps here.
0: Definitely. and And some of the problems have already started to present themselves. I know Ozempic Face is a headline that circulated. And then you look into that a little bit further and you find that it's it's cutting down on muscle in some instances, as well as the fat, which uh, I, I, that's not something I, I know very in depth. But when I hear that sort of thing, that sounds like a red flag to me because we know as we think about health and longevity, especially as we get older, we start to lose more muscle. Muscle is important for health and longevity. We want as much muscle uh, as we can really hold on for as long as we can. And so I wonder about the effect of introducing this foreign synthetic drug that has this Mm -hmm. effect that leads to the muscle wasting on some level. Mm -hmm. Is that something that these people should maybe be concerned about? Yeah, it's a really good
1: point. And it's one of these very gray areas still. Um, I would say, you know, if I have a hundred people that I've prescribed ozempic to, I'm not hearing very much about either of those problems. And I will acknowledge my population's a little bit different than perhaps many other populations. They're very um, literate, very health-aware, very health-conscious. And I would imagine if that was happening with most of them, I'd be hearing a lot more noise about it. I certainly hear the the complaints on other medications. I do think these are real problems, though, for the people it's affecting. And I I don't think people are making this up when it comes to feeling the muscle loss or the wasting or the, the weakness. One of the primary things I see that contributes to that, though, is that when people don't feel hungry, they really do stop eating. And One of the things I have to drill into my patient is you have to keep eating with these medications. It's not um, that you're never going to feel hungry and therefore you, you don't eat. And they say, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. But then they don't eat. And you have to maintain a certain amount of eating or you're effect- effectively starving your body, which is then going to do exactly what you described. It's going to start using its energy sources, which it's supposed to do. And some of those, in fact, do cause um, systemic problems.
0: So it sounds like in some cases you could just be trading one problem for another. I have obesity, so let me trade it for not eating. And then you have a whole other thing to deal with. But even further, I know one of the, the lawsuits that I saw, separate from Ozempic Face, there was a lawsuit that recently was put out there where i think there was gi problems some sort of complications yeah and so that's, that's you safe. know that's one incident one lawsuit you know it's tar- it's hard to sort of extrapolate that out further yeah. but let's say just for the sake of argument that even in in such a short term we're seeing these types of problems i, I wonder about long term like when you introduce or when you modify a natural mechanism in an unnatural way I just wonder about the long-term implications of that and and I would guess we don't have many long-term studies on this given how recently and new it's kind of been on the market in a sense with many drugs we are the long-term studies when when they put that out there into the market so as far as you can tell do you foresee any kind of long-term complications maybe developing with this sort of thing
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I worry a lot about people's bone health. Um, I worry that they're not getting the nutrients that they need and that they're going to start losing bone mass, particularly my women who are midlife and older. They already lose estrogen. Guys are different. They're lucky. They keep producing testosterone throughout their lives. But women lose their estrogen once their ovaries either stop working or are removed. And in the absence of giving them hormones, their bones suffer. So now we've already got that we have potentially a hit with medication because many people in midlife do weight, and they that is a, a time in life where it's very frequent to see these medication used i do think we're going to see a lot of information coming out from the consumers and i suspect it will be very different from what we see from the pharmaceutical company and, and industry what that industry and that group is going to want to make sure we hear because they I know we're already hearing the consumer side. They're going to want to know and make sure that we understand, hey, these are preventing heart attacks, they're preventing strokes. And we can't just look at the short term. Uh, We have to look at the long term, but within the long term, we have to balance which one's worse. What's the worst evil? Is it worse to have your stomach have different changes in its absorption, or is it worse to have a heart attack? And that's the type of thing I think we're going to hear a lot more about in the scientific community. I think we're going to hear a lot more about what has, been gained versus what has lost. Whereas in the consumer industry, these are real people. They're experiencing these real side effects. Um, I did see the, the lawsuit that you're referencing, and she talked about how she didn't feel properly informed about the risk of gastroparesis. And there's a lot of confounding there, so I can't comment to her case specifically. You know, it is true that diabetes itself leads to gastroparesis for some individual. However, that tends to be poorly controlled long-standing diabetes. It is true that medication can cause side effects. And I frequently tell my patients, listen, any side effect you can imagine up to and including death is possible, right? Any medicine can cause any problem at any time. And so that definitely is a concern. And from a long-term perspective, I think we're going to hear from the science community. We've proven that this prevents heart attacks and strokes. Maybe it prevents dementia. Maybe it prevents fatty liver disease. Maybe it improves fertility. But those types of studies aren't going to come out very quickly. It's going to be over time. And that's the frustrating thing that I face because people hear these very real concerns. And for good reason, they are uh, hesitant to take a medication. The truth is most people that I work with, though, are trying to reverse disease and not take medication. So they're not real interested in taking medication at baseline. But for other people, I mean, I've had family members that these medications have given them their life back because they've finally been able to lose enough weight that they can then go move and do the exercise and activities. The question is, is it sustainable? And that's really the crux of what we have to worry about long-term is as soon as I take someone off these medicines, if they haven't had the lifestyle change and the baseline change in behavior, everything's coming back because that's just pure physiology. And that is my biggest frustration long-term that people are not hearing and aren't talking about is what is our plan for when we stop the medication? In Europe, you can only use it for two years. What's going to happen in the United States? I don't know. But only about a third of people even have access to the medication unless they're going to pay out of pocket. And of those people who are taking the medication, we suspect that there's going to be term limits on how long they can use it. And That's a concern from the perspective of chronic disease management because chronic diseases, unless lifestyle has changed, and and I am talking about lifestyle-induced chronic diseases. But if you don't change that underlying problem, they are going to come back. And then you have a gained thing you potentially hurt someone badly. badly.
0: Hmm. I was wondering about that because, you know, as you just think about it, it does make sense that when you modify a natural mechanism in order to lower weight, what happens when you eliminate that modification? And I know there are other medications I'm pretty sure some antipsychotics uh, like mm-hmm. haloperidol, you stop taking them, people basically gain a lot of weight. I might be wrong on that, but um, it does sound like one thing that you're saying here is there's definitely cause for concern for the people who stop taking this. Mm-hmm. You even mentioned in Europe, you ha- they, I guess, limit it to two years. Mm-hmm. Is that a new implementation or do we have some uh, data to show what happens after these people stop taking it for two years.
1: I don't know why those decisions were made abroad. I would suspect it has to do with the studies were only done for a certain amount of time. And so then they were like, well, well you were going to match the study time and not do longer. So that could evolve over time. Um, you know, and I don't use a lot of halparadol, so I, I can't comment on that, but I certainly can appreciate. That there is a distinct difference when people come off the medicine. And and honestly, a lot of times it's not that they're coming off because they don't need it anymore. It's that they're coming off because their insurance won't cover it anymore. Uh, Many employers are stopping to cover weight management drugs. And so people have been doing very well and are losing, even if they're implementing lifestyle changes, it isn't time yet to come off the medication. Even if we consider the two-year, you know, based on studies that that's what we should do. And so we're really interrupting treatment. And we would never do that for another chronic disease. We wouldn't take a person living with diabetes off their medication. We wouldn't take somebody with high blood pressure or high cholesterol off their medication. So why are we doing this to somebody who has a disease? And and that's a real problem, um, perhaps bigger than our conversation. But it is a concern. Um, You know, the the other thing that I would just raise and I may push back at you just a little bit. Please do. On, on the term modification, I do wanna make it clear that these medications are um, synthetic, right? We know that they're made in a lab or a pharmacy, but they are replicates of what our body naturally makes. We normally have these proteins. And so it is not so much that we're modifying the mechanism as much as we're amplifying the normal mechanism.
0: Okay. So I still, I, I totally understand that. We're modifying, or or I'm sorry, you know, we're messing with the natural mechanism that's already there, we're amplifying it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I still see that as an unnatural type of intervention. This is just my opinion, right? Yeah, I follow you. You know, you look at something like exercise and and like I said earlier, when you look at exercise, it does also modify the natural levels of Mm GLP-1. But again, that's still isolating one variable. I, I would want to zoom out and go like, well, what's the sequence of physiological events that lead up to that? Because I would imagine that just isolating this one variable in a synthetic way and amplifying it, even if it mimics some kind of natural process, it does seem to totally leave out the sequence of events that kind of lead up to that in a natural way. So that's just like a, a philosophical, I guess, kind of uh, skepticism towards that. But you know, another thing is that America is unique in that we advertise these types of drugs to people. It is a type of low-hanging fruit. These companies understand the appeal. No one's advertising schizophrenia drugs, right? Because there's no appeal to that. So they dangle these low-hanging fruits in front of us, especially, look, I've been to other parts of the world, and and I I don't want to sound mean in saying this. There is a stereotype of like the typical lazy American. And it does seem like these companies are playing to that market people who have no interest in, in exercising or changing their diet and, and I do want to get into that like the behavior aspect today <laughs> but it doesn't seem fair to really advertise and, and message to these people who are probably very often desperate to to address being overweight and it doesn't on the surface seem helpful for at least those types of people because I know earlier you said in the studies, it's paired with a registered dietitian, a personal trainer, all those sorts of things. But a lot of the people that I talk to have no interest in modifying their mm-hmm. diet, or Correct. exercising. They just mm-hmm. want that magic bullet that will right. sort of be exercised in a pill. It's really mm-hmm. unfortunate. Hey, sorry for the interruption, but please give me just 60 seconds here. I'm not trying to sell you anything. This... Healthy and awake podcast is something that really means a lot to me. I've put a lot of work into it. And long story short, I need your help in order for this show to be successful. All I'm asking for is you take the few seconds out of your day that it takes to go and give this show a five star rating on Spotify, Apple, or if you watch it on YouTube or Rumble, that you make sure you're following me there and give this video a thumbs up. I would really appreciate it. I am fighting against the algorithms that, quite honestly, hate my guts. When you talk about challenging authority and being skeptical of the people who are trying to tell you what to do, well, that's not very well received on the platforms where they're owned and operated by the people who are authority figures trying to tell you what to do. Uh, So I cannot do this without your help. If you do like my show uh, or if you know someone who might like my show, please share it with them or consider giving me five stars, thumbs up, all that good stuff. But Let's get back into the show. Thank you.
1: You know, I think actually most physicians, I I would extend that even to our advanced practice providing colleagues, the nurse practitioners and physician assistants. I think all of us would agree with what you said in that we want people to make the underlying change, but by the time they make it to us, either they can't or they won't. And so we're a little bit limited in what we can do. And because we can prescribe medication, that's what's often done. And I will acknowledge there's the whole oh. rabbit hole we could go down about, well, people prescribe medication because of how they make money, et cetera. All of these things exist and interact in this very convoluted system. You know, your your original point about advertising to consumers, it, it's a great point. And I think most of us uh, within healthcare would agree with you. It shouldn't happen for any medication. Um, And I may have the years wrong, but I don't think it's been uh, legal for more than about a decade or so. So um, your listeners can fast check me on that. But I do find that most of my colleagues would agree 100 percent with the the same skepticism you have. It's just that they feel like they don't have another option to help the person in front of them.
0: Well, let's assume somebody is taking them because, of course, Mm -hmm. many people are. You mentioned that uh, bone health is a possible concern. So what could somebody do to mitigate against those risks?
1: Yeah, so there's a few things. And just in general, common good bone health practices are going to be doing weight-bearing activities. And that does not necessarily mean to be lifting weights, although that is one way to do it. One of the easiest ways for the spine, the hips, the femur, or thigh bone, those types of bones is just walking. Anything that causes the heel to strike the ground is going to be helpful. And so you're thinking about walking, running, skipping, jumping, row, all of those types of activities will help strengthen the bone. And that's because bones are in a natural and normal up and down, um, building up and tearing down process to keep them strong. So if they're not having any type of resistance they have to work against, they're not going to maintain their strength, especially in our those menopausal women, even our men as they get older into their 70s and 80s, that they're not doing those weight-bearing activities against gravity. In other words, Um, they're going to lose bone mass. So that is one thing that I can't emphasize enough. Um, It's not just the cardiovascular activity, the cardio that we need to be doing. It's also the weight-bearing activity, the resistance activity, the strength training. Um, You know, you, you think about the different activities that people frequently do, spinning or um, the swimming, these are not going to help your bones. They're going to help your heart. They're going to help your muscles. They're going to help the flexibility, but they're not actually improving bone mass because they're not against gravity. And that's a really key concept that people don't understand very much. Um, the other thing that I hear quite a bit about is the idea of calcium and I need to take more calcium in. And if you're eating a healthy diet, you're getting your calcium through your fruits and vegetables. If you um, even if you don't drink dairy, almond milk, some of these plant milks have a ton of calcium. So I actually don't generally find that people need supplemental calcium. There are calcium calculators online that they can go and type in their general average diet and and see what they get. And there are different calcium recommendations for different ages and genders and, and whatnot, but most people don't need a calcium supplement. What they do need is vitamin D at least in North America, we're not getting a whole lot of vitamin D. And one of the biggest misconceptions I hear almost every week, especially in the summertime, is, well, I go outside. And so I'm getting my vitamin D through the sun. Well, first of all, you're in North America, so you're not getting as much vitamin D as you think. And second of all, if you're wearing sunscreen, you're blocking 95% of that vitamin D absorption. And so we're not as well uh, vitamin D Sufficient, as most people think, and it's actually more common that I find people who are low, sometimes severely low, in vitamin D, and that's going to impact your bones because if you don't have vitamin D, you can't absorb calcium, and if you don't have enough magnesium, your calcium levels are—it's not going to work correctly. So, just those two things: being active and eating the right types of food to get the right nutrients in our body, and taking a vitamin D supplement are, are key strategies to keeping the bones strong. For the person who's on Ozempic or any of the similar drugs, it's even more crucial that they're doing these things and being very intentional. But to your point, most people aren't even doing activity, So it's a real uh, frustration that I don't see resolving quickly, but I'm hoping that through efforts like yourself and getting the message to people of what really needs to be done, that they can start owning their health and really take back the true health care we should have instead of the sick care system we currently have.
0: Definitely. And and next, I do want to shift into that sick care system. But just out of curiosity, what happens in the body that makes you concerned about bone health as somebody takes something like Ozempic?
1: The biggest thing is that you're not eating the right nutrients. And so if yeah. you're taking Ozempic, you're not going to feel hungry. If you do eat something, it's often not the, the minimum amount of Fruits and vegetables a day we recommend is at least five. I'd love it if everyone ate ten servings, um, and and that's a you know something we should be teaching in grade school. What is a serving? How do you know what the right amount is? And when can I figure out if I'm eating enough berries or enough citrus or enough dark green vegetables? Because nobody knows. We haven't taught them. So my concern is people think they're doing the right thing and they're they're not. They're sabotaging themselves.
0: I know, uh, at least I think, a lot of the people taking Ozempic are often prescribed something like metformin in addition to the Ozempic. Uh, is that something you can speak to at all?
1: Yeah, sometimes that does happen. Um, the, the classic patient that that's going to be is somebody who has insulin resistance, has prediabetes, maybe their fasting glucose is elevated. It could be with diabetes. And the idea behind metformin is that it increases the sensitivity of the cells in our body to listening to insulin. Because what happens with insulin resistance is your body stops listening to the insulin your pancreas is secreting. Well, why does it do that? Because your pancreas is working overtime trying to get your glucose levels to stay normal. Well, why is that? Because we're eating foods that are full of easily digestible sugars. And so mm-hmm. most people, if they need ozempic, and remember, ozempic is only labeled, it's only FDA indicated for diabetes. The same drug, semaglutide is um, in different forms. Ribelsis is an oral tablet of semaglutide, also for diabetes. And then Wegovy is another injectable. It's the same injectable medication as, um, as ozempic, but it's in a different size pen, and they have different indications. One's for diabetes and one's for obesity. And so um, that is one thing just to clarify. So if someone's on a Zempic and they're being prescribed that for a FDA-indicated reason, then I have to assume they're on diabetes protocols. And because of that, they should have been offered metformin by standard of care protocols. Doesn't mean that everyone does it. It doesn't mean that every patient accepts it. Metformin causes the lot acts effects on its own for people who are sensitive to it. So it's a tricky drug. You know, when I was in residency training, um, and, and I trained at Cornell, and they had the you know, they have one of the best weight betters in the world. And we frequently had very limited options for healthy people with weight, and we were using Metformin. We were using um, Fentir. We were using Topiramate or Topamab, doing everything we could, capitalizing on side effects of these other drugs for other indications. And we could do that because it was cheap. We can't do that with our current medications because they're so expensive.
0: Metformin's so interesting because a lot of the so-called biohackers, the people in the fringes of the health community, like really from day one sort of took metformin and ran with it. I was really surprised to see some prominent people who often spoke against the pharmaceutical industry to celebrate metformin, saying that this basically is the magic bullet, only to find out. I think there were some studies linking it to possible cancer. Uh, I, I don't have the studies offhand, but if I do find those, I'll put them in the show notes. And even like as I was doing research for this episode, I got an ad for Wegovy, which I don't need. But, you know, with the the data uh, that they track on me, they advertised it to me. And you look at the bottom, like any drug advertisement, you see like the risk for thyroid disease and all kinds of other things. And, you know, with the bone health concerns, it just I do feel for these people. But I also, you know, I, I just wish that exercise or a healthy lifestyle were Pushed as much as some of these drugs are, or I guess there's not as much money in that type of business model. But perhaps this is a good time to shift into health coaching. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're an MD, but you also are a board certified health coach. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about what kind of led you into health coaching?
1: Absolutely. Actually, uh, when I first heard about health coaching, it was from a patient. She'd received a letter from her insurance company. And this is a really sweet elderly lady. And she comes in, she's showing me this letter. She's like, do I need health coaching? And I'm looking at it. It's got all the right types of um, logos across the top. It looks legit. I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, they're scamming this old woman. <laughs> so I started looking into health coaching and figuring out what is this and how is it needed and why is it different than what we're already doing? And I realized actually there is a dramatic difference. And the skill set that I learned in medical school is not the same skill set I learned when I was doing my integrative health training with Duke. And One of the problems I've run into consistently in talking to my colleagues is they want to help people. They just don't have the skill set for the conversation. And kind of backing into the last comment you made as we shifted that there is money across every industry, right? Everything in some ways does get impacted or influenced by money. But there's no reason that as a physician... I can't sit and have a 30-minute conversation explaining very clearly to people how to make lifestyle changes. As far as my skill set goes, the reasons and the constraints in the system that I can't do it, it's not actually about money. It's that I, in the prior world I lived in, at 15-minute slots, I had patient after patient after patient, back-to-back, typically 20 to 25 patients a day, 15-minute talk times, I wasn't able to even get my notes done, which are required to submit for insurance billing so that we got paid for the work I was doing. And so those are the types of the systemic constraints plus others. Like we're not even talking about answering the phone messages and responding and sending in the prayer authorization. That is why physicians and our colleagues, nursing and physician assistants can't get all this done. And so then the question is, well, who's doing it? And where are people going? Because people are smart. They know how to use the internet. They know how to read. And they know how to look and dig for information felt. But really, to have that information not filtered can be quite uh, misdirecting and misguiding. And so the health coaching, coming back to this point, is I really, for the first time after going through health coaching training, was able to get to the underlying why of the reasons people needed to change. I was able to understand their perception and what they wanted out of their life. And you would think that that was taught in medical school. And actually, my medical school is fairly progressive. And they did introduce a concept of motivational interviewing. But frankly, that should have been in every single class, all four years of medical school. We should have been constantly using it in internship and residency. And every single person across the country who's in a position like I am should be using this every day. Because the health coaching aspect is that you, you look at the person as a whole, you figure out what their vision is, you figure out what's important to them, and then you help them reach that goal, not paternalistically, but by using their own innate sources of wisdom for their life and their expertise to reach those goals. And then you hold them accountable for it. And you do all of this in a way that's sustainable. Nothing in medical school set me up for that type of conversation. I observed it, not realizing what I was observing here and there. Um, i observe certain clinicians doing aspects of it, but really health coaching ought to be integrated with medical and nursing school, in my opinion. It's really a vital part of the conversations I have every day. Now, it's probably the number one reason I find such high success rates for reversal of disease. And that's not a concept I could have even begun to dream of doing. When I was in residency, for example, we treated disease but we weren't reversing and curing lifestyle-induced diseases. And that is possible. And if your listeners hear nothing else I say, today, I would want them to understand that it is possible to reverse chronic lifestyle-induced diseases.
0: Absolutely. And some of the problems you mentioned with doctors often, you know, some I've experienced this myself, sometimes barely even looking at you, they're typing on the computer. Right. I think to a large extent, the ICD codes, the implementation of that, Probably made it a bit worse. I've even, like, some of them are ridiculous. I've seen ICD codes for struck by a turtle. is actually a real ICD code. Oh, struck by uh, a duck, another one. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, injured at the opera house, although mm-hmm. I did not see one for struck by a turtle at the opera house. So I think they need to fix <laughs> that. Um, but, yeah, there is, I, I mean, the the medical profession in many ways has become pharmaceuticalized. And I do wonder, like looking ahead, I do wonder about a lot of things. So, I mean, I have fears about the development of health coaching becoming pharmaceuticalized in a sense, and and there are definitely if you look for health coaching jobs, you see some of them are are like, quote, unquote, health coaching jobs where really it's just a partnership with some company trying to push drugs actually like Ozempic, um, and there are definitely some concerns there. But yet, you know, thankfully, there are nurses and doctors who are pursuing, like yourself, going into health coaching related roles. i What do you think about the future of, of health coaching or even the future of medicine in general?
1: yeah it's it's definitely evolving. Um, health coaching itself is a really frustrating field um, for those who want to do. Their greatest amount of good in the world and to be their best potential and to help advocate for people and influence people and, and really support people in making change. Many of those individuals have done exemplary work and they've become board certified. They've done everything within their power to make the right change. And then you do have people who might be a medical assistant. Maybe they were a nursing assistant um, and they're being called health coaches by insurance companies, by different private um, digitalized companies, you know, there's a lot of discrepancy in, in what defines a health coach. When somebody says, I'm going to see a doctor, everyone knows it's an MD or a DO. There is no um, question. Now, of course, there are doctorates and other things, physical therapy, naturopathy, et cetera. So I'm not saying that only MDs and DAs are doctors, but that's what people generally mean when they say they're going to a doctor. But I say I'm going to a health coach. Most people are like, "What? In, what is that? Who, who Who are you seeing? What What do they do? And they have no clue what I'm t- about. Um, and certainly some of these insurance companies, you know, they have health coaches working with people and, and making tremendous strides. I've seen that happen with family members, but they're often not even offered until someone's had a heart attack or they've got severe diabetes. It's uncontrollable, with you know, medication. And so that concerns me a lot. Why are we not having health coaches in high school and college across the spectrum? And why are we not demanding from the profession that if you're going to work with people's lives and intersect in one of the most vital capacities they have, which is health, you need to have a standard. We would never accept somebody being in a physician role without meeting all of the criteria. Why would we do that without um, not have that with our health coaches as well? Nurses have to have a special type of, of license. We have dietitians we register registered dietitian. There are expectations when it comes to people's health. And that concerns me a lot that we are not forcing anyone who's going to call them health Mm -hmm. health coach to not meet a certain standard
0: criteria. Um, Go ahead. Well, so I almost hesitate to ask this, but (laughs) I have my concerns about the, our boards, like the Mm MBHWC, the National Board of Health and and Wellness Coaches. I, I mean, from a business perspective, the ICF, the International Coaching Federation, I think all they would have to do is announce their own version of a health coach certification, and that would be a serious competitor to them because they're they're they've been around a lot longer. They have a wider base of people who are already uh, certified through them. Do you think about anything like that at all? Do you think that's a concern?
1: Um, in terms of them not having a competitor and monopolizing the market or in terms of the ICF. setting so, yeah.
0: Well, I already see health coaching it kind of, as you hinted at a little bit, as like the wild, wild west, right? Mm-hmm. On, on one hand, you have health coaches that are kind of counting on the already broken system to basically adapt in a way so that we can be plugged into the broken system that quite frankly... Most of us became health coaches to get away from the broken system in the first place. So I see like that's a big red flag or a big area for concern there. And on the other hand, we have health coaches who take an entrepreneurial route, who are less centralized. So on a on a practical level, we're more decentralized. We all like I mean, my own personal message and approach towards health coaching is very different from just about every single coach I've ever seen. And so, and the same can be said of, of any other health coach, right? We all take different approaches. And it's just like when we think about, how do I say this? Like, you know, I don't really like the idea of appeal to authority and, and looking up to institutions. Quite frankly, I hate that. But one thing that does give us some legitimacy right now is this national board certification, which... I don't know, I I haven't, I'm just skeptical about the development as the potential for competitors is still kind of there. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that was kind of a mess. But do do you see like what I'm kind of getting at or no?
1: I think so. You know, I I do, I have concerns with the lack of standardization. So to your point, you have to have a certain baseline. I have concerns that we can be over, um, what should I say, overregulated. I mean, one of the biggest complaints I hear from my colleagues and physicians is we have to pay to do this exam to prove that we're competent, even though there's all these different ways we could demonstrate in clinical practice. And so there there is that risk, right, that you can be over regulated. And I hear you kind of saying, I don't want to go to the the big institution, and that's where I would view that really becoming um, a very big negative in our societies. My concern is I don't want people coaching my patients who don't understand health and health is such a, a wide catch-all of a term that we have to clearly define what exactly do we even mean. And so that's my biggest fear is that there's people who are capitalizing on opportunity, which is, you know, the, the right response and the type of economic system we're in, but they're doing it in a way that could harm people. And your ability and your right to do your own business and do all these things stops when it starts
0: hurting other people, in my opinion. Okay, that makes sense. Well, what if you had a magic wand? This is one of my favorite. This is a coaching question I'm sure you've maybe even said before. But if you had a magic wand and you could change, let's say, three things about either the current health system or just the the current status of health, generally speaking, in this country, what are three things that you might change?
1: So certainly one is education. I don't think that people um, are getting the adequate education to nutrition specifically that they need. So if I had a magic wand, I would have correct nutrition taught in preschool and all the way up. Every cafeteria that our kids have exposure to would be with foods that are truly whole foods. They're real foods. They're not processed. Uh, I certainly advocate in my community quite a bit with our public schools trying to help improve. The nutrition of our students here one of the example though that just drives me bonkers about our system right now is they're forced at least the public school are forced to make sure they're in compliance with the, the, the national guidelines for what to feed children one of those says that you have to have a certain amount of whole grains in certain food and so when you know i was in that conversation with this individual and she pointed out we have she Cheez-Its here that are 80% full grain. So these are better for our kids because they're not the cheese that they can go get in the store. And my thought was what well, the fine, but they're still cheese it. Why are we not feeling feeding kids real food? And we know there's so much evidence. Real food tremendously impacts attention, executive functioning, physical ability, the ability to stay awake after the noon lunch because you're not Overindulged on high-processed food carbohydrate. So if I had a magic wand, one thing I would change is nutrition education and implementation from the very start. The second thing that I would change would have to do with how the system itself is constructed. And I probably, there's a lot of bad players here. Good people, bad system, but they are taking advantage of the system being broken. And specifically, where I would point this out is the ability for employers to not cover every disease and for insurance companies to pick and choose which medication people get access to. I don't care if people don't take medicines, right? That's their choice. But my job as a physician is to tell them, these are your options. And if you have access to the option of medication from one person to another, that's not fair. And to have that lack of purity in what people have access to, I think is morally wrong. Do not ask me how to fix it because so I didn't figure that out. I'm happy to be part of that conversation solution if there's someone out there who's gonna, you know, advocate for this, but it is a really a big problem. Um, the third part is I think our healthcare team members, from the medical assistant to the medical secretaries to the physicians, all of us need to understand how to talk to people in their own language. And I'm not talking about um, cultural languages, I'm talking about using the words that patients are using to describe their health. So if I have someone who's super high health literacy and their education has shown that they've done this research and, and they're having this conversation with me, I'm going to talk very differently to that person, that I am the person who really truly is trying their hardest to be healthy and has nothing from which to draw. They don't have education. They may or may not have a socioeconomic status that allows them to access education or different types of food. And they deserve to know just as much as the person who's highly literate and to be able to have access from their medical team. Practical examples of how do I implement this in my life? If I'm eating on a budget and I'm a single mom and I have two jobs and I have two little kids I'm taking care of, I'm trying to put all these pieces together. The last thing I want to do is think about how complicated nutrition is. I want something fast and easy that I can give my kids, probably give to my mother or mother-in-law who's helping me out watching the kids, right? These complicated situations aren't being solved. And until those are equally addressed, we're not going to have parity in healthcare, And that's a real crime.
0: I do think so many people would benefit from, you know, maybe not everybody wants to become a health coach, but I know you said uh the doctors can learn more about how to communicate with people. If I had learned some of what I had to learn to go through health coaching training in order to prepare for the boards, if I had learned all that stuff in college, I would have been such a better communicator early on. And I don't mean better at talking because, you know, Correct. most people talk quite enough, me especially. It's really listening that is seems to be very paid attention to it in in the smallest degree. And it's so powerful. It's really changed my life in a lot of ways. I think a lot of people would benefit from that. Just, you know, even beyond health, but health as well. And so I guess you you did talk a little bit about the food there, eating real foods, whole Mm -hmm. natural, real foods. I don't know if you saw this on LinkedIn. I unintentionally started somewhat of a heated debate. I posted an image of an egg on one side and a product called Just Egg on the other side. And that Just Egg product had, I don't know, 20 ingredients. And my point was that, you know, I wasn't trying to trash vegans. I, I didn't even say the word vegan, but some mm-hmm. vegans got upset. Uh, my point was that, you know, on one side, you have an egg, a real, whole, natural food. Whether you, you like meat or not, that's, one, that's a separate thing. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, you have this product that's called Just Egg, and it is the furthest thing from Just an Egg. It is by definition a processed food. It is the the health of it is questionable. Yeah. So I know when we spoke, gearing up for the show, you mentioned like the hijacking of of nutrition or something like that. Right. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit about like the state of the food and and all that stuff?
1: There's there's a lot of problem here, and and I imagine I'm going to miss some really salient points that your listeners may want to think about as well. But one of the the concerns I have is there's a lot of lobbying that is done for all agencies, all industries. This is not an uncommon thing. But when there are when there's money influencing how people eat, what they have access to, what they're educated about, that's not right. And so I'll give you an example. If I tell you you need to increase protein in your diet, almost 90, I guess 95, 99 percent of people, when I say protein, they think meat. There are so many plant-based proteins, right? And that is one of the biggest stumbling blocks I watch people in my office every single day go through. I tell them I want them to eat more protein and they say, but I don't like beef or I don't like chicken. And I said, well, who said anything about animals, right? (laughs) We're talking about protein as a macronutrient. We're not talking about the source. And there are so many different types of protein. And so we should be hearing about that. We should be knowing it. Our kids should be learning it. In college, that should be hard of health classes. I mean, that, that should be basic information that there are so many plant-based proteins. On top of that, people need to know how to prepare them. What good does it do you to know that there's proteins in beans, legumes, and lentils if you don't know how to? So that's a real problem that I see um, with just that one example. Dairy industry is another one. Um, people, my, my ladies frequently tell me, well, I don't want to 100%. cut out dairy because then I will not want my calcium. But why have we not told them that there's a ton of calcium in almond milk? Um, you know, that's really a concern when different industries can influence an entire population of people to think that, you know, protein means meat and, and dairy means calcium. They've done a, the marketing teams and the lobbying teams. I have to, a lot of them, they've done a tremendous job in completely sabotaging what people understand about nutrition. Um, and they've done a great job with it, but it's come in a price that's quite steep. And that's part of this broken system. And again, people are doing their jobs. These are not bad people. They're in a position that they're doing their job and they're doing it incredibly well. But in so doing, it's harmed a lot of people.
0: That's Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that's a great point is because they are, you know, they're marketers. They're doing their thing. They're doing a great job. And it has just wreaked havoc on the state of Nutrition and what we know about food and what's healthy. Because my point in making that post was not to trash vegans, certainly not. I have no problem with vegans. If anything, more steak for me. I do love steak. Um, But it does seem, again, not fair because these vegans, these vegetarians, even keto, same thing happens. These people, they decide for whatever reason, this is right for me. This is how I want to eat. This is how I want to live my life. And the same tricks being played on the unsuspecting consumer who reaches for that cereal with all the the messaging on there that tells you how healthy it's supposed to be you find out it's not exactly that healthy it's the same tricks that they're doing to the vegans you know presenting it in a certain way that appeals to their desires same thing with keto like oh this is keto and they just use the certain colors and and phrases and and ca- buzzwords and all these different things when really if you look at it and you scrutinize you find out it's, it's just another processed food. Like there's no good argument for using my specific example. There is no good argument for just egg, this product, promoting health. Even if you don't like eggs, you, there are many strong arguments saying that it can promote health. So it's really just a, a neat, you know, as somebody who does my own marketing, I, I got to say it is a neat trick that they've managed to pull off it's just unfortunate the results that it actually leads to.
1: Right. And, and I mean, you go back to, I don't remember the years, maybe it was 1970s-ish, um, you know, there was a really heavily, a pharmaceutical industry heavily influencing the interpretation of certain data regarding the causes of heart attacks and after sclerosis and there's a lot of thought now that many of that was forged. I think there's probably a lot of people who believe there's proof of that. Um, it, it's not a clear enough debate that I'm going to take a stand on it. But the reality is that when those decisions were made, we were told as a country, go low fat and low fat turned into high sugar and then high sugar turned into high fructose corn syrup. And then it became all these other derivatives of sugar names. Um, I mean, thank God now that we have to have on our label added sugars so people know all the ingredients that are sugars that are in their food. You know, one example of the education I was talking about that we should be teaching as early as preschool it's how to read a nutrition label. People don't understand how to do it. They think they do, but they think they do. But when I start drilling into it with them, they don't understand the difference between saturated and unsaturated fat. They don't understand the difference in the sugars. They don't understand that when they look at the ingredient list, how things are arranged, it's not alphabetical, if you've ever noticed. It's actually in order of weight. And so the heaviest ingredient by weight of that product is listed first. If one of the top three ingredients in whatever processed food you're eating is high fructose corn syrup, we've got a problem. And I bet if your listeners looked at the boxes and bags and bottles they're consuming, and start seeing that they're eating a lot of toxic things for our bodies. I'm quite practical yeah. about that. Sorry to go off on you there.
0: No, that's great. And it does seem like if people were just to focus on the whole natural foods, like you don't see many nutrition labels at a farmer's market. I don't think you really need them as much at a farmer's market. I think that would take some of the work out of it, like the need to look at those nutrition labels. But I, I completely agree. It's definitely important to. You know, because not everybody's only eating food at the farmer's market. So it is definitely important to to understand that. Right.
1: And even if they're doing the, the, you hear about the grocery store perimeter eating and only eat what's on the perimeter, don't go in the aisle. You know, realistically, some people can't afford to buy fresh fruit and vegetables all year long. They cannot afford to buy grass-fed beef all year long. And I don't have answers for all of those, but one quick tip would be that fresh um fruits and vegetables are flash frozen in your freezer section of your grocery stores and those if you are in a pinch and you are looking at cost and you're saving with you know every penny makes a difference go in the frozen section because they're just as nutritious and they are great with your baking they're good with your smoothies Um, certainly if you if canned fruits and vegetables are what you have access to use those and just rinse them really really well those are all better than the processed foods that you can get otherwise. So don't let money be a reason not to eat both.
0: Definitely. And this idea of the perimeter shopping in the grocery store, I think some of these companies are starting to catch on, and I wonder if eventually we'll see Oreos next to the bok choy or something like that.
1: Probably. Or Oreo-flavored bok choy.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's I'm going to write that down. That's a good idea. (laughs) Uh, Anything that we haven't talked about yet that you wanted to cover today?
1: So, you know, this has been such a great conversation and there's so many things I'm passionate about here that we've just barely touched on. So I hope your listeners gain some value from it. And I certainly appreciate that you let me come on. And certainly we want to continue the conversation.
0: Absolutely. I really did enjoy this conversation a lot. Uh, But Dr. Amy Loden, where can people find out more about you?
1: Yeah, they can go online to www.vitalitymwc.com. Vitality Medical and Wellness Consulting is the firm I own here in St. Louis. And we uh, are having a great time helping people restore their health, reverse disease, and get back to a, a much better place in their lives.
0: Awesome. Well, Amy, thanks again.
1: Good to see you. Thank you.